Hey everyone, I just want to say that my novel, A Breaking Report, is finally available on Amazon. That's A Breaking Report, R A P P O R T. And now with the added bonus of being completely free if you've signed up to the Kindle Unlimited program. Now, if you prefer the touch of paper, then I have a hardcover and a paperback edition for those living abroad. But unfortunately, only the paperback edition for Australians due to the anti Australian discrimination. Thanks, Amazon. Regardless, I just want to say thank you for your support as this novel has taken five years to finally complete and it has been a labor of love through every step of the way. All right, now on to the podcast. Three, two, one, let's jam. I've wanted to talk about the topic of China and its government for a while, but there were two recent events that led me to create this podcast. Firstly, as I'm sure you're aware, the 20th Party Congress has just concluded, and with that we know that Xi Jinping will be overruling the 10-year term limit that was implemented after Mao's death. Now, this is huge and things are shifting in China, and this decision to stay on will have a huge impact on geopolitics around the world, and obviously domestic Chinese politics. Secondly, I recently had a conversation with a friend that made me realize how opaque the Chinese government is. As I was reclining on his sofa, he turned his head to me and asked, China's a communist country, right? I mean, the central political body, CPC, does have communists in its name. Yet, North Korea also refers itself as the Democratic Republic of Korea. And it's neither democratic, nor is it really a republic. How about the fact that China has huge state-owned companies, such as Huawei or Alibaba, and these are household names. Yet, when it comes to inequality, the antagonist of any real socialist or communist government, China ranks slightly higher than America. Or how about the fact that the Chinese government will politically talk about socialism and the necessity of wealth redistribution Yet, Shanghai contains one of the most important stock exchanges in the world. So what type of government does China have? Is it authoritarian? Is it socialist? Is it nationalist? Is it democratic? Is it communist? Is it populist? What other words ending with ist can we throw onto this list? In this podcast with Mr. Mitchell History, one of the best YouTube channels for anyone wanting to understand Chinese or Australian history, we will try to decipher the vagueness of the Chinese state. And as tensions between both of the world's superpowers heat up, it's imperative that both sides learn about each other. And one of Mr. Mitchell's history's responses struck me as both incredibly helpful and thoughtful. And if, touch wood, a conflict breaks out between China and America, there is a high chance that you, yes you the listener, will either be drafted or expected to fight in a conflict abroad. So before we commit ourselves down the path of a potential nuclear winter, keep in mind one of the potential outcomes includes cities like Beijing, California, Kyoto being glassed while radiation fallout spreads across the globe. Now more than ever, it is essential that we try to understand the other side, and only through diplomacy and cooperation can we return to a 
prior error of peace. This is the first of two podcasts. The next one will try to predict how China's relationships with other countries and regions will change and evolve over the next few decades. Once again, I will be joined by Mr. Mitchell History. I hope you learned something from this. I don't think you actually speak Chinese. Is that correct? Yeah, not a word. I think I know yeah. how. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, I bring this up to say, like, I actually feel like it's very impressive because like you, you don't speak the language, but yet your understanding of the country is, is actually quite strong. And maybe it's because you've read so many like, you know, novels and books and like, you know, textbooks about it. But yeah, can I ask, where did this interest in China begin? And why did you decide to start a YouTube channel? Like, why didn't you just become someone like me who would like listen to podcasts or listen to YouTube videos or would even maybe read a book here and there? But wouldn't produce something like where did you why did you decide to take that extra step forward yeah it's a good question i think for me my interest in china didn't peak until after i left university so i did a history degree at university that primarily looked at europe and that was where most of my interest was and i'd always kind of dismissed it because again there if you're from a european background like myself you're dealing with names that are i guess harder to get your head around because i don't know the linguistics behind the name whereas i do for ones with the Latin alphabet. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my interest only peaked once I left university and we started to see heaps of China stuff appear in the news. So 2019, we're seeing tensions rise. 2020, obviously it peaks to a whole new level with the outbreak of COVID. And then you've got Trump trying to get a Uyghur bill through uh, Congress, which basically declares what China's doing a genocide um, in Xinjiang. And so you're seeing this increase in global tensions. And then I got into reading Kevin Rudd and I listened to his TED talk, which I believe you've listened to as well, mm-hmm. where Kevin Rudd essentially makes the argument, this was back in 2015, so a fair while before, but he makes the argument that the two are on something of a collision course for war unless serious diplomatic negotiations happen. And so having looking at that pattern, I got into reading it and kind of saw, at least in my opinion, just how right Kevin Rudd actually was. And so I started the YouTube channel at the start of 2021, basically with the goal of helping people to know what the grounds are for a potential World War III. And for me, this is particularly important because the students that I teach right now as a school teacher, they will be, if a war breaks out in the next 10 to 15 years, they will be the age bracket that are getting encouraged to fight in this war. And so I want them to know the grounds of fighting the war. I was chatting to you before, going back to World War One. It's one of the cliches that you learn very early on in the war, but it was a true cliche. It really happened. Australian, young Australian men were approached at bars by women and we're given a white feather to suggest you are a coward for not fighting in World War One. World War One had nothing to do with Australia and soldiers had no idea why they were fighting in the war, but they were essentially convinced that the heroic move was to fight and the cowardly move was to stay at home. And so lots of people who had no idea why they were actually fighting went and died in the trenches. And I just want my students to know the grounds for why we would be in a World War Three and to come to an informed decision if they were to fight or not. It's not, I'm not necessarily mm-hmm. saying, hey, you shouldn't fight in a World War Three or you absolutely should fight in a World War III. This is the future of our country. I'm not trying to peddle um, a clear agenda, but I just want them to know the grounds for why they would be fighting so that it doesn't creep up on them or it doesn't hit them by surprise. And then all of a sudden we're flooded with this propaganda saying why men who fight in wars are heroes and why men who don't are cowards. I want them to at least know the grounds for why they're fighting in a war and to come to an informed decision. Yeah, and I think that's firstly very 
uh, admirable that you are doing something like this because I, I think it's essential. And I'm also a history teacher. And when I do teach World War One, it's crazy. I talk to them about the white feather thing and the boys in the class, their reaction is like, no way. Men actually went to war and lived in trenches for four years because some woman gave them a feather. Like that blows my mind. But the reality, as you said, is that's 100% what happened. That is seriously what happened. And there is a chance of governments or people or companies or whoever pushing these narratives, which might actually send young men to their death. And that's something which I, I guess inspired me to learn about the history and the politics as well, because the potential, the possibility for a skirmish or some sort of like eruption of tension has been, you know, as anyone who's been paying attention to the news has been increasing more and more. So I, I really think that's commendable. And I just want to say one more thing before I throw it to you. That's actually something I see in, in your YouTube videos. There isn't much of a discussion of like the world or history through a political lens. Like, like for example, you don't see, well, to me anyway, it doesn't seem like you position your videos by saying, this is the ideological truth or like, I think this country is good or bad because it doesn't abide by something. Like, it really just seems like you are talking about the world almost through, and and I'm not sure if you know this person, like a Mishima-esque, Mishimerian. I'm not sure what the, what the term is, but it seems like you are talking about the world through the lens of like geopolitics devoid from ideological trappings w would you say that's fair and, and do you know who Mishamer is and, and the realist school of thought that he has pushed no actually i don't know the the guy you're talking about it, it does that what you describe does tend to match up with at least how i'd like to con consider myself i probably do have ideological biases that come across that i don't realize it but essentially i think when it comes to geopolitics the best explanation i've had for how the world works is it's all about control of resources rather than mm -hmm. countries are not actually as keen as well, unless you're talking about say Iran or a country that is basically a theocracy and a country that's run on religious grounds. Very few countries do run purely on ideology. They actually, it's much more about control of resources. And that's why I often use in videos, the global chessboard analogy that the, the globe is a chessboard with every country, including Australia, trying to further its own interests by making deals that favor them. It's what every country does. It's a story as old as history itself. Um, mm -hmm. And I think if that's the worldview that you come looking at it, it gives you a much, uh, for me, I think it gives you a much more realistic analysis of what's going on. So rather than say like America wanting to promote freedom or the Soviets back in the you know 70s wanting to promote communism, it's both countries trying to further their own national interests and they will of course compromise on their ideological principles to achieve it. So America will happily support a dictator to get a good trade deal because it's in its own interests, even though it goes against its purported ideology of freedom. And then you can find countless other examples of China funding all sorts of people in Africa. We're talking about people who want to ban communist parties in Africa, but they're actually getting Chinese funding because these, these countries are giving China good trade, favorable trade deals. And if the time comes, having a huge African population will help for a potential World War III scenario. So it's, there's, yeah, I, th I, th I think, Control of resources is, for me, the most accurate way of looking at geopolitics. I think, obviously, social issues, so domestic social issues, so when you're dealing with, like, abortion or any sorts of those ones that we're seeing right now off the back of Roe v. Wade, that is a lot more ideological. And the right-left paradigm 
is a lot more accurate for describing something like that. But I think for global geopolitics, countries are not as motivated by ideology as what we think they are, would be my my brief analysis. Yeah, that's that's fantastic because you really echo a lot of the things that John Mearsheimer says, and I'll have to send you a video from him after this podcast. But but he's he basically considers himself a realist. So everything that you said before, where countries are self motivated and they will do things which break their ideological barriers or their leanings, if it means securing more money or a greater treaty or, or whatever it is, anything that they can do to benefit themselves, they will do regardless of the trappings. And you gave many examples on both sides, both China and America, which I really appreciate because you point out the hypocrisy in both countries. And, and I think that's essential. I've done this before and people will say like, well, but isn't that whataboutism? But I feel like, like, I guess you could say that is whataboutism. Like, you know, what about this country? Does does this negative thing or does this positive thing? But I think it's more highlighting the reality of politics or, or the interplay between countries, which, as you said, resource-based, money-based, power-based. And I guess I could sum it up with a single quote. I, I think Mao said this, actually. He said something like, there's no such thing as permanent friends or permanent enemies. There's only permanent benefit or the pursuit, the permanent pursuit of benefits. And I think that captures not only a, G- a John Mearsheimer-esque understanding of the word, but everything that you said just then. Yeah, I think I think that like that that quote would render true with how I view global politics, and I understand it as well. Like, if you are a government, you have an obligation to your people to deliver them the best possible conditions. As a, as America's close ally, I don't begrudge America for kind of you know bringing us into Iraq and bringing us into like Vietnam back in the back in the sixties, I don't begrudge America for doing that because at least in the in their eyes that was their national interest. Obviously, Vietnam, both of them are very contestable as to whether it truly was in the American people's interest, but it's in their interest and they have an obligation to their people to deliver what is in their best interest. So I don't begrudge them for that. It's for me just the way the way the world global politics works that countries out of obligation to their own people, but also as part of the thrill of the game and part of the grand strategy to further your own country's interests, you make decisions that serve your country well, even if it doesn't serve who you claim your allies are pretty well. So yeah, I'd, I'd say that that pretty closely matches up with how I at least view global politics. Mm, mm. And the the topic that we actually got two topics that we want to talk about. And the first one is what sort of political system does China run? So that's a great segue talking about how countries will break from ideological leanings in order to enforce a better situation for themselves or get more benefits for themselves. Let me just bring up a, a quick story, an anecdote between me and my friends, which is part of the reason I reached out to you to speak about this. I remember going to a friend's house and talking about you know different countries and he's actually Korean. And he asked me like, is China communist? And I paused and I, and I just remember thinking like this answer, if I was to legitimately give you like a detailed answer, he's not a history teacher, nor does he particularly like history. I just remember thinking like this question could take an hour or more or two hours, three hours. And then, so my response to him, and I wasn't, I'm still not sure if it really was that good of a response was China has communist-esque ideas and ideals, but at the same time, just in the way that North Korea calls himself a republic, 
I wouldn't really say that China is a communist country and that it is a country with a lot of like different political inputs. And I, I think sometimes they're actually making it on the fly. Like they are doing things which they're like, oh, this sounds cool. And then they'll add it and they'll be like, oh, no, it's not very good. And they'll get rid of it. But it seems like China, and granted, you could say this about a lot of countries, but China in particular to me seems like a mishmash of different political systems. So firstly, do you agree with that? And secondly, can I throw it to you? What do you think the political system of China is? Is it? Can you really give it a single definition, a single word, single label? Oh, great question. Actually, I think your description is exactly right. I think I, when it comes to is this country truly communist, I think it that gets a little bit into, into semantics. I'm not a Marxist scholar. I have barely read Das Kapital and the Manifesto. So it'd be like me also trying to describe is someone, someone truly Islamic when I'm not a Muslim. Very tough mm-hmm. for me to set the parameters for what something is. I think I would say in terms of how I understand communism, which is uh, the state has complete control over the country's resources and property, and then the state seeks to distribute all resources evenly amongst the people so that the country has shared resources. Mm-hmm. Is communist, is China like that? Yes, in terms of having state control over the resources. No, in terms of equitable distribution of resources. Um, mm-hmm. the, the difference, I say the main difference between the economy of the West and the economy of China in the economy of the West, corporations largely influence what the government does. In China, the government largely influences what corporations does. The government sets, sets the rules for corporations and basically can, if it wanted to, basically buy complete ownership over a corporation. Whereas in Australia, through donors and through like lobbying, lobbying groups, really powerful. Yep. Yeah, exactly right. Like the the business council in Australia is incredibly powerful, particularly in New South Wales as well. Is China communist? No, because it doesn't distribute the money evenly. Western China is far less wealthy than what Eastern China is. But yes, in the sense that they have complete control over the economy and they tell businesses what to do rather than businesses more or less telling the government what to do or at least dictating the terms of the market. In China, the government sets the terms of the markets. It's like, okay, we want electric vehicles because electric vehicles are going to be the future. We will heavily subsidize that industry and we will tax from wherever we need to, to subsidize that industry. In Australia, we pride ourselves on having a free market where the government plays minimal role in subsidizing. So as useful as EVs might be 30 years down the track, they're not as useful as a say, like what a Toyota Camry is for the average Australian. And so the government prides itself on not playing a role in hugely subsidizing that industry. So I'd say mm-hmm. in China, government controls the economy. In the West, economy largely controls the government would be my very short synopsis. But is it communist? It certainly started as 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 one of the most purely communist countries. But over time, a lot of the communist world would see China as, as sellouts and they would see China as abandoning the principles of Marx because you have all these Eastern cities like Shanghai and Guangzhou that are loaded, that have heaps easier tax rates than what the rest of China has and you've got these huge tycoons as well so are they truly communists I would say they're communist in having control over the market they're not communist in what they do with the national resources in spreading it evenly amongst the people and they pride mm. themselves on that uh, I think that's the China what is it called the Marxism or socialism with Chinese characteristics I believe that's the the actual name for this sort of political system Yeah, that's exactly right. And Deng Xiaoping, who kind of started the market reforms in the late 70s, he knew what was coming. He knew that 
the communist world would look at him and say, what the heck? Like now has been going on for 30 years about how we need to have basically a, a classless society. Now you're coming in saying some people will get rich first. Deng Xiaoping kind of rebranded it and said, hey, no, what we're doing is socialism, but a Chinese style of socialism, which mm-hmm. effectively meant a much more capitalist model of socialism. So yeah. you can throw, we can throw these labels out like, I don't I kind of see it on Reddit all the time, like anarcho-capitalism, like all these like very precise fancy <laughs> labels. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I even know what half of them actually mean. But yeah, basically on the spectrum of free market West to government controlled market in the East, China exists somewhere in the middle. Mm. And there's, you know, that's a lot to unpack. And I, you know, I stand by a lot of what you said, but let me just, you know, touch on a few points. From what I know about Marxism, which I'm not, I'm definitely not like a scholar by any stretch, but I'm pretty sure Marxism's final stage. And, but this is the, this is the difficulty of talking about Marxism because it seems like pure Marxism, you know, and, you know, I put pure in quotations, seems quite abstract in the sense that I'm not really sure where it's, it's really happened. So it's quite hard to talk about it seems it, since it seems like it exists within a textbook, but pure Marxism is actually supposed to be stateless. And that's the, like the final stages, it's supposed to be so self-sufficient communities that it's actually supposed to be stateless. And like it's just hard to like to put that over China. So I, I guess you know, as you're saying, can you call it communist? I, I think in some sense you can, and we'll be throwing other words like nationalist, authoritarian, you know, all these other words in the discussion later on. But there's a term, there's an actual quote in Chinese politics which I I, I want to see if you actually know it or if you can remember it. it. And it's really famous, and it talks about crossing the river by. Do you, have you ever, have you heard of this? No, actually I need you to finish this one off. Yeah. I don't, I'm not up with the idioms. So <laughs> I think I need you to finish this one off for me. Okay. So the, the quote is crossing the river by touching the stones with your feet. And the idea is that, so you have the goal, which is to cross the river or in the political sphere, it is to either maintain control of the country or increase the economic power of the country. But how you get there is purely dependent on the terrain underneath the river. So I think a big binary between, or a big difference between the West and the East, or I really should say China, because you could include Japan in in the Western sphere, is that I feel like China is more willing, or right now, after Deng Xiaoping, I should say, to break from ideological binaries or like absolutes by, I guess, navigating the terrain depending on what needs to happen. So you could say it's more flexible. You could also say it has no ideological center and it's just like a mishmash of ideologies. And I think both are correct. But there's this idea that like, you know, that the West really promotes human rights and and voting as like the, you know, the only stamp of legitimacy. And I think the Chinese government looks at it as like, well, that's one, but we will do other things and we'll increase freedom when necessary and we'll decrease freedom when necessary. And the goal is to cross the river, but how we do it is completely arbitrary and dependent on the whims of, oh, I shouldn't say the whims of the leader, that makes it look like a complete tyranny, but dependent on the situation. Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. Going back to what you said about a stateless society, there's one country where you wouldn't expect a pure, in quotation, quotation marks, a brand of communism. It would be China because it's got, what, nearly 4,000 years of Absolutely. extremely rich history 
And you've got a nation who prides themselves on, for a lot of history, being the most powerful empire in the world. In fact, they call the 1800s the century of shame or the century of humiliation because they were so badly beaten by firstly Britain and then the Japanese at the end of the century. So Mm -hmm. if you want this stateless society, China is not the place to start it up. And so we saw even as early as, as Mao, Russia of Marxism-Leninism is a revolution that begins with the factory workers. Mao said, we're going to begin with the rural peasants because that's what China requires. So from the very early days of Chinese communism, China has abandoned what was seen as textbook conventional European communism in pursuit of doing it their own way. So I think that's exactly right. They're not bound to an ideology. Even Mao, Mao was far more ideological, but he he would be considered a heretic for a lot of a lot of communist people in the world. And so Mao was ideological, but he was still ideological to his own model of Marxism. And Deng Xiaoping was far less ideological. But you're exactly right. I think you mentioned earlier that they experiment with policies and if it doesn't work, they scrap it. That's what Deng Xiaoping did in the 1980s when he mm-hmm. implemented his economic reforms. He experimented with tax rates in certain Chinese provinces and effectively either pursued or reneged on policies based on their effectiveness. They're, they're, they're also a very, it's interesting because Europe likes to take credit for kind of enlightenment empiricism where you kind of, by process of elimination and by basically applying the scientific method, by repeating experiments, you can find out the absolute truth. China has always, like again, China had a lot of inventions going back. You've got your, your, your printing press for gunpowder and all that sort of stuff. They have applied that method for a long period of time and they actually apply that method to its political system rather than, hey, we're going to sign a constitution. They do have a constitution, but it's far more flexible than Western constitutions are. Rather mm-hmm. than we're going to sign a constitution, these are the principles of our country. If we abandon these principles, that won't be able to happen because the constitution is the binding document that stops future governments from abandoning these principles we have right here, right now. China would never have that because each set of circumstances requires a different solution in the eyes of China. And so, yeah, they're so much more flexible with their ideology than, than what we are with the West going back to, you know, yeah late 1700s principles of enlightenment, freedom and and democracy that came after the French Revolution. We still largely hold to them, whereas China wouldn't for a second consider holding on to 200, 300 year old ideology if it doesn't serve the circumstances of the time. Mm. And I think the the breakdown of the, as you referred to, the Qing dynasty, which is the last dynasty, I think the breakdown of that dynasty and the severing of tradition had a huge impact on the on on the mindsets of different of the Chinese psyche, really. And, and I think ever since then, there, like, there has been quite a cutthroat idea of politics. Like, you know, if it doesn't work, get rid of it. And yeah, when it comes to the government, this is this is like a weird weird thing. And this is why I think like the socialism with Chinese characteristics. It doesn't really mean anything or it's such a vague term. And I think it's been purposely done so because it really, it is so vague because when it comes to like having a strong government, really China is the poster boy for this idea. And it's existed throughout, you know, thousands of years of Chinese history. And it's actually an an idea sort of ingrained into the Chinese people. This idea of if the government is weak, the country will naturally follow suit. Whilst, as you said, in a lot of Western societies, the idea of an overreaching government or a very powerful government is often what causes the downfall of society. So, so it's an interesting, there's such a difference in how power is seen. Whilst in China, centralized power is seen as essential for whatever geopolitical reasons or maybe geographic reasons, um, 
whatever the reason, that was how culturally it came out. Whilst in the West, as you said, completely different mindset. So can I ask, and I did mention these ideas previously, there's authoritarian, there's nationalism, there's communism, there's economic liberalism, like there's all these terms. What would you classify China as then? If you say it's not necessarily communist, if a person, a student came up to you and said, Mr. Mitchell, okay, I understand that China might not be communist. What would you define it as? What are the most pressing or the most obvious aspects of its political system? How would you respond? Yeah, I'd probably say authoritarian socialist would be, if we're going to go run with the terms that people use to describe, describe governments, authoritarian in the sense that, as you just said before, power is centralized. They would laugh at the idea of having a Senate like we have in Australia. They'd be like, why would you have a second house? designed to slow down the passing of legislation. So that, yes, that was they would. <laughs> they would. <laughs> so they're extremely, extremely authoritarian. And I don't mean that in necessarily like a dirty sense of the word in the sense that government has far more power to do what it wants to do. That's got advantages and disadvantages than say a system like Australia. And then socialist in the sense of the government has control over the economy and the government plays a far bigger role in redistributing the economy than what it does here in Australia. A redistributing wealth, I should say. So Xi Jinping has made it his goal to essentially see much greater wealth redistribution. Hu Jintao, who was the guy before Xi Jinping, basically he had this policy of trying to transfer wealth from the East out to the West. And so he increased Western representation in the National People's Congress. And so China is still socialist. It's not communist, to use the words that people would use. It's not communist in the sense that it doesn't want completely even distribution across China. There is room for wealth disparity, but the room for wealth disparity is far less than what it is in the West. And they would also say that having a huge wealth disparity is detrimental to your economy. If you have an mm. underclass, that's going to create civil unrest. And it's also going to negatively impact your economy because that underclass can't purchase from the wealthier class. And so the wealthier class will eventually suffer as a result. So that would be how I would describe it. Authoritarian on the one hand, and then socialist, which usually the two would go somewhat together. So authoritarian and socialist would be the two words I'd use to best describe it. Would you would you include the word nationalist? This is a word that I, I see more and more being brought up with China, um, partly under the Xi Jinping era, but also it, it's a, a little maybe ironic ideologically because communism has often, you know, prided itself on being anti-nationalist in the sense that the communist revolution was supposed to be the joining of all nations or, or uh, the working class from all nations together in order to throw off the chains and thus it's it's almost like a transnational idea in its most political or in its most purest form but i see the rise of like nationalism in china not too dissimilar to maybe american nationalism obviously there, there are differences but this idea of like the exceptional country and i think in response to the american dream which has dominated the western sphere for like the last hundred years really ever since like britain stepped down from its mantle i see these replacements like the chinese dream or the 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 creation or bring back old statues of like kongzi or like all these like old chinese philosophers and old chinese generals and i see the country actually moving towards a nationalist path in a way that mao tried to i think mao tried to distance himself from that because the nationalist path seems to maybe naturally or historically overlap with ideas of like you know kings and emperors and monarchs and empires and stuff and and, and I think communism tried to distance itself from that. But 
do you see a growing nationalism as well? And, and you know, w- whether you do or not, like, would you add that to another term that might, you know, describe China? Yeah, hugely. That'd be the one that I missed out. So nationalist, certainly. The, the reasons why. So you're exactly right to identify that Mao was less nationalist. The evidence for that is in Mao's military expenditure. So Mao basically had far less resources devoted towards the military. And what was there was designed to contain the borders. So have soldiers stationed in Tibet, have station, soldiers stationed in Xinjiang, and have soldiers stationed along the border with the Soviet Union. Then Xi Jinping comes along. Xi Jinping completely increases military expenditure. Where Mao put his foreign aid money into was into communist rebels in Africa. So he was completely about the communist cause. Again, it was his own model of communism, but he was completely devoted to the spread of socialism. When it came to Xi Jinping, he's upped the military expenditure massively. And I really appreciate that you pointed out the difference between the American and the Chinese dream. The American dream is all is completely individualistic, right? It's you become a millionaire by hard work and you work your mm-hmm. way to the top and live a happy life with wealth. In China, the Chinese dream is a collective dream. We are going to move together to overtake America in terms of their economy by 2049. So it's not, hey, we just want this amount of income by a certain year. It's actually, we want to beat this specific country, the world leaders, by 2049. Hugely nationalistic. Xi Jinping's also kind of pumped heaps of money into the military. The difference is Xi Jinping's put money in the Navy. You only really invest in a Navy if, you're like Australia, an island nation, and it's purely protective. Or in the case of China, you have expansionist visions and you want to protect yourself against a conflict with another country through shipping routes, which if you're going across the oceans, that's evidence that you're pretty keen to expand your influence beyond your own territorial borders. So Mm -hmm. I think expenditure on the Navy, the Chinese dream, it's pretty clearly indicating that China is actually priding itself on being uniquely Chinese. With Xi Jinping's foreign aid to African countries, there's no ideological leading to it. So for Western countries who give loans to Africa, typically the deal has been, we will give you foreign aid if you introduce these democratic reforms in your country. Xi Jinping has openly said, I don't care what your political system is. It's in our interest to have you be a strong nation that's allied with us. We will give you that money without any quid pro quo. So I think Xi Jinping is far less ideologically driven in the sense of promoting you know, pure communism. And he is far more nationalistic in the sense that he wants to advance China's interests and have China become a greater nation than America with more influence. He wants mm-hmm. to see the change of empire under his watch. Mm-hmm. And to, just talking about the, the Chinese dream thing. So you're 100% correct about the collective idea, this idea of the country as a whole rising up and then achieving a certain economic or cultural influence in the region. I think you know, for better or worse, the China, because it's been such a strong country for so many years and it's influenced Japan and Korea, I think in the Chinese psyche, there's this idea that why are we not where we were previously as the centerpiece of Asia and and countries like Japan or Korea coming and and adopting Chinese customs or Chinese language, why are we not up to that, that position? And I think there is a desire to return to that and, you know, funny enough, maybe America will experience this in, in the coming years as well. You know, as it perhaps starts to decline, there's this idea of like, you know, we should be the linchpin, linchpin of the Western hemisphere. But just talking about the Chinese dream. So as I said, yes, there is the economic rise, but I don't 
believe I've heard Xi Jinping talk about eclipsing America as part of the Chinese dream. Now, this might be an unspoken aspect of the Chinese dream. So if it is, I'd like you to, you know, just tell me, you know, say it is the unspoken aspect or, you know, explain why it wasn't like, you know, so deliberately spoken about. Um, and also, can I ask, apart from China's like growing GDP and growing military and stuff, like why has Xi Jinping chosen this moment in time to be more militaristic or expansionist? Yeah, so everything was, was a perfect storm going back to the JFC. So basically, from the 80s onwards, you had all these Americans telling China how it should run its economy. They said, like, you idiots, you ran it under this state-controlled Maoist model, and you had 30 million people die from a famine. Let us tell you how to run the economy, and let, let us also take advantage of your really cheap labor. And so the Chinese kind of basically listened to the Americans until the JFC. Then when the JFC happened and America basically really badly affected the world economy by having this really individualistic market where you have loan companies or or, or mortgage brokers giving ridiculous loans out to customers who then can't repay it and they sell that dead on and so forth. The Chinese looked at America's model and were like, that was ridiculous. You completely imploded your own economy because you had no national direction and you had selfish sharks playing off one another and that completely tanked your economy because you had people defaulting on your loans. China looked at that and they kind of said, okay, we are now not in a position where we need to listen to America and we're in a position where we can take the front foot. In conjunction with that, Xi Jinping comes to power in 2012. And so when Xi comes to power in 2012, he is someone who, as we've seen, is far more adventurous than, say, his predecessor Hu Jintao was and far more willing to confront America. And so... Then the next part of this perfect storm comes in 2016 when Trump's elected and as part of his strategy to get elected, he needs middle America. And so part of his strategy to win over middle America is promising tariffs on Chinese steel companies to protect American steel nations and get steel workers to vote for him. So he puts these tariffs on, China responds with their own tariffs. And then all of a sudden, China and America are directly in a trade war by 2018. And so you kind of go through that 10 years of history going from GFC to Xi Jinping to the trade war of 2018. And we see America and China far more overt in its rhetoric against each other. So up until this point, America, you know, had made references to China's human rights issues. I remember there's the, I don't know if you've watched The Office, but there's an Office episode literally devoted around the rise of China. And even then you can no, see that like, okay, so essentially the, 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 plot, the, the plot of the episode is that Michael Scott, the, the boss of The Office, has just read one one magazine article on China and he's really patriotic about how America needs to be protected. And then one of his workers, who's known as the smart one, is giving all these pro-China arguments back to him. So that's unthinkable these days that someone who's a protagonist of the show would give all these pro-China arguments. And so it's moved from, okay, we, we're aware that China has these human rights issues that we've kind of made reference to, such as going back to Tiananmen Square Massacre, but they're our biggest trading partner and they're the reason why we can have all these cheap commercial goods and what we have. So we'll largely stay quiet about all of it. You go to the trade war, and as it's becoming clearer that China's in a position where it really can challenge America for dominance of the global sphere, that rhetoric becomes much more overt. So we start to see these documentaries on the Xinjiang Uyghur issue. We start to see heaps more, in Australian media as well, heaps more, for lack of a better word, hit pieces on China where their free or their respect for free speech is being completely attacked. We see the 2022 Winter Olympics where a lot of the world is boycotting and protesting. We see the world much more 
overtly protest against China. And in response, China's then felt much more emboldened to speak out against the West. You were right to identify that China's been pretty cryptic in how it's spoken about the West. Now it's becoming much more overt as they're being antagonized by the West and feel they really have no other option. And I feel like fundamentally, both parties are playing, or both countries, I should say, are playing towards the domestic audience. Like this Trump thing, you know, hugely domestic aimed or domestic orientated. And I also think a lot of the wolf warrior policies, I actually think the wolf warrior policies and diplomacy has actually been overblown. But but even that, you know, there is truth to it. That was done, in my opinion, because of the Chinese, the Chinese audience, the Chinese politicians wanted to show that they were being tough and strong to an uh, to a foreign audience. Hey, folks, thank you for tuning into this episode. So this is a part one of a two part series. And as you know, in this episode, we look more specifically at the Chinese government. But in the next episode, once again with Mr. Mitchell History, we'll be looking at how China's relationship with different regions and countries in the world will evolve. And yes, this will require some guesswork and some foreshadowing. But I think we base our opinions of statistics, numbers, policies, and growing trends. So if you're interested to understand how China will affect Asia, or the Middle East, or Europe, or North America, or South America, or whatever country or region, stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to Safety Lost with Stanley Ching. If you enjoyed this, then please leave a rating or a comment. I hope you're leaving with a new idea, and make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and other places that can be found in the description.